One Saturday morning in 1954, in Virginia, in the USA, a 12-year-old boy wearing oversized surgical scrubs was sat in the corner of an operating theatre, riveted by the scene unfolding before him. In those days, as a way to encourage the young into the profession, physicians were allowed to bring their children into hospital to watch them work. The boy's father, Dr. Abe Schwartz, was an anesthesiologist, and that morning had been tasked with helping to put a teenage girl to sleep for a routine operation. His son, Stefan, was given the simple instructions to sit behind him, stay quiet, and not touch anything. It might seem a strange thing for a 12-year-old boy to do on a Saturday morning, but Stefan was an unusual boy with an irreligious and analytical mind fostered by his atheistic parents. All seemed to be going well when all of a sudden the medical staff became gravely concerned and began to hurry around the girl. Her heart had stopped. Stefan stared widely as they quickly pulled off the girl's gown and began steadily administering CPR. Despite what we might see on film and TV, cardiopulmonary resuscitation is very rarely successful. Thankfully, however, this patient was one of the lucky ones. Having come round, there was no chance of completing the operation, and so Stefan's father accompanied her as she was wheeled off to an adjoining room to recover, while Stefan was instructed to go and change. Later, having disrobed and showered, Stefan was waiting for his father in the staff room when Abe came out of the shower with a strange look on his face. Soon after, as Stefan and his father drove into town for their regular post-operation ritual, a get-together with Abe's colleagues at the local delicatessen, it was clear that something was troubling his father. It was only when they were seated at the delicatessen that Abe finally began to unburden himself. As Abe explained to his colleagues, shortly after the girl had come round, she began to speak to him about an unusual experience she'd just had. She claimed that while she was under sedation, she suddenly found herself floating above her body, which she could clearly see stretched out on the operating table below her. But when she tried to call out to the medical staff, nobody seemed to see or hear her. Unsure what to do, she made herself drift out into the hallway, where she then claimed to have seen a doctor in a blue and white shirt, with a loosened tie around his neck, talking to a nurse. The young girl went on to describe the nurse in great detail, including a very specific hairstyle that she wore, which the teenager had greatly admired. Then, all of a sudden, the girl was back in her own body, staring at the ceiling and gasping for air as a team of doctors stared down at her from above. Abe, not one to believe in such things as near-death experiences, paused for a moment, a little unsure of what he was about to say next, while the other doctors 
listened with bated breath. Then Abe continued. Having dismissed the whole thing as some kind of fever dream, he politely said goodbye to the girl, then stepped into the hallway and stopped suddenly in his tracks. There, standing before him, was a junior male doctor in a blue and white striped shirt with a somewhat dishevelled looking tie around his neck, while only metres away from him was a female nurse with a rather elaborate hairstyle, exact in every detail, as the teenage patient had described it. Incredibly, after hearing the story, the other doctors present, many of whom, like Abe, were World War II veterans, began to relate similar stories. Each had had a patient who'd clinically died or been on the point of death only to be revived. Time and time again, some of the revived patients related how they believed they were able to see around them shortly after they'd lost bodily consciousness, with each of them saying it had felt as though they were very much still present and aware as though they had been fully conscious. The 12-year-old Stefan could only sit silently, soaking it all in. How could someone be dead, he thought, yet still be conscious? It didn't make any sense. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. The surrounding desert was mostly featureless and scorching in the full heat of mid-afternoon. As an Egyptian archaeologist and his assistant watched on from the shade of some nearby trees, two men were wandering, seemingly aimlessly, back and forth across the dusty terrain as a camera crew followed close behind. On the ground and all around them, The weathered walls of an ancient settlement could be seen, jutting up through the sand. The ruins of the ancient Egyptian port city of Maria. The city was located around 40 kilometers southwest of modern-day Alexandria on Egypt's north coast and is thought to have last been populated sometime in the 13th to 14th centuries. The two men were George McMullen, a middle-aged Canadian who, with his wavy, greying hair, ordinarily spent his weekdays working at a Chrysler dealership in Canada, and the other was Stefan Schwartz. Schwartz, who was by then 37, had changed little from the 12-year-old boy who liked nothing more than to accompany his anaesthetist father to work on Saturday mornings. He was still as bright and inquisitive as ever, but what he'd been privy to on that strange Saturday morning two decades before had never left him. It had also made him determined to one day unlock the mysteries of human consciousness. In the intervening years, Schwartz had graduated high school, served a tour in the US Army, and graduated from the University of Virginia. Then in 1971, he 
he began working for the American government as a special assistant for research and analysis for the chief of US naval operations, as well as being a consultant to the oceanographer for the Secretary of Defense. All the while, his preoccupation with the nature of human consciousness had been growing. Throughout his college years and subsequent government jobs, Schwartz spent his spare time devouring parapsychology journals, looking for answers, and became particularly fascinated with the work of apparent psychic, Edgar Case. Back in 1935, Case is believed to have predicted the coming of World War II. About the same time, he is also said to have described what were then unknown details about an ancient sect of people that were later identified as the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls, 11 years before the scrolls were discovered. Case's work inspired Schwartz to begin his own experiments to test what he had come to call distant or remote viewing, an ability he believed allowed some people to detect hidden or buried objects which they had no prior knowledge of. For Schwartz's first experiment, he laid out a grid in his backyard with rope, and in each grid square, he would bury mason jars containing various objects, such as a perfume bottle, a vegetable peeler, or a bathroom sponge, to name a few. Then, he would send out a plan of the grid to people in different parts of the world and ask that they tell him where on the grid they sensed there was an object and what it was. The study was initially double-blind, neither the remote viewer nor the person analysing the data had any prior information. To avoid any possibility of his knowledge of what was buried influencing what viewers saw, Schwartz later made the study triple-blind, getting someone else entirely to choose the object and where to bury it on the grid. Either way, he found the results were the same. Over a period of several years, Schwartz claimed that about 12% of the people who tried this were reliably able to locate and describe the hidden objects. Perhaps even more incredibly, Schwartz also claimed that the evidence from his experiments suggested that people could describe something that had been hidden for 2,000 years just as easily as a teacup hidden that afternoon in the next room. Schwartz would go on to found the Mobius Society, a Los Angeles-based private institution committed to research in the field of human consciousness. As part of his remote viewing investigations, Schwartz also conducted an experiment known as Project Deep Quest, explored briefly in Unexplained Season 6, Episode 16, in which remote viewers were tasked with trying to make predictions while more than 300 feet underwater. This, according to Schwartz, also proved to be possible. But Schwartz wasn't satisfied. He wanted even more rigorous tests of remote viewing 
and eventually settled on the field of archaeology as the perfect discipline with which to put it all to the test, an area of study frequently beset by the problem of not knowing where to look for ancient things. But Schwartz knew people who seemed to be able to do just that, and Canadian car parts sales manager George McMullen was just one such person, and now, here in the Egyptian desert, the pressure was on. In what was by far their most ambitious archaeological mission up to that point, in 1979, Schwartz and his Mobius team set out to find the long-lost remains of key buildings from the ancient city of Alexandria. Laid out by its namesake Alexander the Great in 331 BCE, Alexandria was one of the first planned cities in history. A confluence of Greek culture and the Pharaonic East, it represented the pinnacle of sophisticated culture at that time, but as successive versions of the city were built up, century upon century, the location of many of the original buildings had become obscured. Incredibly, through the Schwartz-led experiments, a team of 11 apparent psychic seers had supposedly pinpointed the location of legendary sites, including the palaces of both Cleopatra and Mark Antony, and the Ferris Lighthouse, otherwise known as the fabled Lighthouse of Alexandria, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. But there was a hitch. Stefan Schwartz and his team needed formal permissions to conduct the searches that would confirm their findings, which included several sites now underwater in the modern-day harbour of Alexandria, the Egyptian authorities and archaeological community were understandably dubious and demanded proof that Schwartz's unorthodox methods worked before any permissions could be granted. And so, they set out to convince them. Fine arts photographer Hella Hamid had no prior knowledge of Alexandria, the region around it, or its history. But, like George McMullen, she was said to have repeatedly performed outstandingly well on Schwartz's remote viewing tests. Hamid, who believed her apparent skills were the result of simply being attuned to that other world that exists, as she put it, described her process as looking at a map, not so much with her eyes, but just to get a feeling of it. She would then sense what she described as a heaviness in certain areas, which suggested to her that she was onto something. Seemingly putting her photographer's eye to good use, Hamid was also very precise when outlining the details of buried structures in target locations. Not long after the Mobius team arrived in Alexandria, Hamid, as one of its supposedly better psychic performers, was selected by Schwartz as the best person to help provide evidence to the Egyptian authorities that they should be taken seriously. 
A few days of intensive work later, Hamid was certain she'd identified a lost ancient site of profound significance. At the behest of Hela Hamid, Schwartz and the rest of the team squashed into a Peugeot sedan and headed off to trawl the city's back streets in search of what Hamid had spent the last few days repeatedly sketching, described as a narrowing street or alleyway with high walls on either side. For the most part, the team travelled at speeds of 5 to 15 miles an hour on streets with no lanes and no signals and interweaving animal carts, while the constant blowing of car horns, music blaring from radios, and overlapping calls to prayer broadcast from the city's many minarets were a never-ending distraction. After hours of searching, with nothing substantial to show for their efforts, the hot and frazzled team were on the point of giving up, when late in the afternoon, Hamid yelled for them to stop. Relieved for any excuse to be exiting the stuffy car, the team swiftly piled out. Although barely visible from the street, through a rusting wrought iron fence, some 15 feet below, was a narrow alleyway, just as Hamid had sketched, that appeared to be an abandoned archaeological site. It backed onto the El Nabi Daniel Mosque, just to the south of the city's downtown district. Standing opposite, Hamid appeared suddenly to be lost in thought, as though she was somehow being drawn back into the 2nd century BCE. She reached for a pen and began what was now her ninth supposedly remotely viewed drawing of the site. Her sketch showed the semi-buried site, as if seen from above, which included a cupola with three levels, each with arches for bodies to be placed in. Hamid said it was a large dungeon or tomb, around 20 to 30 feet below street level. The feeling in that moment, she said later, was like sliding through time, and seeing a speeded up view of the entire tomb's history. The next day, Schwartz was back in the same general area with George McMullen, who was apparently told nothing of the previous day's events. Like Hamid, McMullen also became consumed in thought the moment he arrived at the site. McMullen pointed to an area of broken marble and rubble telling Schwartz that it was Greek workmanship. When Schwartz asked him what he thought it had been originally, McMullen replied that it was a tomb, but one without a body. The next thing he said was electrifying. I've never been more sure of anything in my life, said McMullen. This is Alexander's tomb. The precise location of Alexander the Great's tomb has never been ascertained and is considered by many to be among the most sought-after prizes in archaeology. Had George McMullen just identified it? At 
As it transpired, this wasn't the first time that the area in question had been pronounced as the location of Alexander the Great's tomb. Since the mid-1800s, several scholars had placed it in roughly the same area. One even claimed to have discovered not only the tomb, but also Alexander's supposed mummy inside the El Nabi Daniel Mosque, but permission to excavate was never granted, and so it proved the same for the Mobius team. Even an exploratory excavation inside the mosque, one of the oldest in Alexandria, would cause an unacceptable level of disturbance to public access. Not only that, there was understandably extreme resistance to foreigners touching even a tablespoon of earth on the sacred site. Professor Fauzi Fakarani, an Egyptian archaeologist in the Department of Classical Civilizations at the University of Alexandria, who the Mobius team had been consulting with, told them investigations were not going to be possible at the site. But while Fakarani doubted the existence of psychic windows into the ancient past, he was enthusiastic about the Mobius team's goals and keen to dive with them in the city's eastern harbour. In growing desperation, Schwartz suggested that Fakarani give him another chance to demonstrate his team's psychic techniques really did work at an unpopulated site where excavations would be possible. Thankfully, Fakarani agreed, but only subject to certain conditions. The professor would be the one to specify the type of target, which had to be located near the surface to make excavation easy. He would also choose the site, and settled eventually on Maria, the abandoned ancient sister city to Alexandria. Maria had once been a freshwater port on the shores of a beautiful lake, but the River Nile had shifted its course in the Middle Ages. The lake dried up and the city died, leaving formerly teeming commercial districts and pleasure palaces across an area 15 miles squared, abandoned to wind and sand. Not only had none of the Mobius team ever been there, but they were given only the crudest of maps and no other information to go on. Fakarani wanted them to find a nice important building with some significant remains, mosaics, frescoes or statues, to tell him the depth to walls and the floor and describe artefacts that would be found at the site and the culture which produced the building. What Fakarani may have omitted to mention was that Egyptian archaeologists had carried out electronic surveys in the years previously, along with a few trial excavations, and they'd found nothing of major significance. George McMullen seemed oblivious to the hot wind that tugged at his sweat-stained shirt as he limped across Maria's unimposing and mostly buried ruins, Stefan Schwartz had noticed something about McMullen from previous remote-viewing site work. He'd seen that when the apparent psychic was on to something, 
that slight limp disappeared three hours after they'd begun as the two men climbed yet another low desert hill Schwartz realised with a start that his companion's limp had gone neither the hundred degree temperature or the persistent black flies seemed to be bothering McMullen anymore as he suddenly stopped turned and said let's get that professor with that the apparent psychic sunk to his knees and began to sketch a crude map with his finger in the sand which included the outline of a small hump of land nearby walking over that same hump moments later he declared that within it was the buried wall of a structure of some importance as well as buried fire pits and more cryptically a floor that he said was there but also wasn't there dressed in jeans and a cotton shirt with her short dark hair crammed under a sun hat Ella Hamid was tired and crabby she was feeling unwell after a day of sitting around and waiting in the hot and dry conditions after finally being called into action she was unaware of what McMullen claimed to have found as Schwartz took her to the location that McMullen had just identified in the apparent grip of intense concentration Hamid honed in immediately on the same exact spot that McMullen had found Hamid then started to breathe heavily and slowly began to describe what lay beneath them the building was from the Byzantine era she said pinpointing the location of its northwest corner wall as well as some kind of freestanding circular pillar or statue which had long since been broken convinced that only Roman era structures were present at the site Professor Faccarani nonetheless put his excavation team to work the very next day estimating that the dig would take six weeks he predicted it would end in failure six days into the dig however the excavation team uncovered the top corner of a wall at the exact same depth that Hamid had predicted two days later the strange broken column structure which she'd also supposedly seen was found detailed inspection showed it to be a chimney-like oven built by Bedouins after the settlement had been largely abandoned of a type never seen in the area before then the fire pits McMullen had predicted were found some symbols were also uncovered on some of the walls revealing that the building was unequivocally Byzantine not Roman after all it was a few days later when the building's chalk subfloor was revealed apparently all that was left after the original floor had been removed when the building was abandoned centuries earlier here the excavation crew found some small heavy marble objects smooth on one side and rough on the other 
which appeared to be anchoring elements of a mosaic floor that had once been there. Evidence, it seemed, for the floor that George McMullen described as being there but not there. With this demonstrable and resounding success, a delighted Stefan and his Mobius team were then given permission to explore the seabed under Alexandria's eastern harbour, the location where the so-called remote viewers had almost unanimously indicated significant sites from the ancient city would be found. The team first attempted to use a kind of sonar, but the murky, sediment-laden waters made it difficult to get clear readings, so divers were brought in to do close searches in the churning and turbid harbour waters. Working with directions given every day by the remote viewers, they began in an area where it was predicted that Timonium would be found, the Grand Palace of Mark Antony. There, through the dark waters, the divers found a line of fallen pillars along what appeared to have been the facade of an imposing building. And in an adjacent area, where Cleopatra's palace complex had supposedly been located, the team found indications of the uppermost remains of a large and impressive structure. Unfortunately, however, most of the structure lay buried beneath the seabed, preventing further investigation. Then came a more conclusive discovery. At a third site earmarked by the remote viewers, the team's divers discovered a series of massive granite blocks. The blocks had obviously been cut with great precision and are now believed to be ones from which the towering lighthouse of Alexandria, the tallest building known in antiquity, was constructed. Euphoric with success, Schwartz and the Mobius team said goodbye to Professor Fakhrani, along with George McMullen and Hela Hamid, who both headed home. But before they left Egypt, the team had one more job to do. They'd been hired by a film company to shoot a documentary unrelated to the other Mobius project work. The location for the film was the Coptic Monastery of St. Macarius, one of the oldest Christian communities in Egypt, found midway between Alexandria and Cairo. As the team drove to the monastery, Schwartz gazed out at the desert and at the clouds of roadside dust that kicked up from behind them. Lulled into a meditative reverie, a memory sprang into Schwartz's mind from the days before they came across the possible tomb site of Alexander the Great. Shortly after the team first arrived in Egypt, Stefan and George McMullen were travelling from Cairo to Alexandria when McMullen began to speak at length about Alexander the Great. As he described his perception of the man, it seemed to Stefan as though his words were coming from a direct memory. McMullen declared that Alexander was a funny person who despite being a great statesman and leader, could join in with the ordinary soldier and get drunk, act silly. He had no fear of dying or anything else, he said. 
Schwartz wondered how this man could have such insights. Although at odds with how most academics viewed Alexander, the description almost exactly mirrored the views of the British historian Professor Peter Fraser, whom Schwartz happened to be in agreement with. Had Macmullen simply read about Fraser's theories before, Schwartz wondered, or was he reading his mind? Or was he somehow simply reporting what he perceived when he focused on Alexander? Continuing on their journey, Macmullen went on to talk about the post-mortem care of the body after Alexander had died of a fever in Babylon in 323 BCE. Macmullen said that it was Persians who'd taken care of the corpse, although when preserving it, they hadn't used the more thorough techniques practiced by the Egyptians. As the body began to decay, according to Macmullen, dye leaching from the clothing underneath Alexander's burial armour had stained the corpse a weird sort of reddish colour. He also believed Alexander's body had been removed from the tomb in which it had been interred in Alexandria. When Schwartz asked him what he thought had happened to the remains, Macmullen, without missing a beat, said that they'd been taken out into the desert several centuries after Alexander's death by people who he described as not being Islamic. The only group which could fit George Macmullen's description of not being Islamic at the time of Alexander the Great was one of the Christian sects that had dominated Alexandrian life for several centuries before the Islamic takeover. When pressed on where Alexander's bones were now, however, Macmullen said he didn't know. Intrigued as Schwartz was by Macmullen's information at the time, the team didn't even have a fix on the possible tomb location, and if the tomb was indeed empty, as Macmullen had claimed, then there wasn't any possibility of ever checking this curious fact out. But the oddity now played on Schwartz's mind as the Mobius film crew began shooting at the St. Macarius Monastery. Over the next few days, when he could, Schwartz chatted with the monks. They told him that for over 80 generations, their order had passed down the tradition that the bones of St. John the Baptist had been brought there from the Holy Land. But the root of these relics had not been a direct one. They'd been placed for a while in Alexandria, before being transported to the monastery, where it was said they were buried, although no one knew where exactly. Then in 1976, a chapel at the monastery had been restored, and a wall had accidentally been broken through, revealing a hidden crypt on the other side. It contained the bones of numerous people. Some of the monks had begun researching where in Alexandria the bones might have come from. Poring over ancient texts, they'd learned that the remains of John the Baptist were said to have been buried for many years beneath an ancient Christian church 
the ruins of which were now buried underneath the site of none other than the El Nabi Daniel Mosque. The hairs began to rise on the back of Schwartz's neck. This was the mosque next to the site where both George McMullen and Hella Hammett had placed Alexander the Great's empty tomb. And Schwartz was remembering once again how McMullen had insisted Alexander's remains had been taken out into the desert by people who were not Muslims. Schwartz was then ushered by one of the monks into a cool, yellow, stuccoed room, completely empty, save for a large, carved wooden chest in the middle of it. We found the bones of twelve bodies in total, said the monk, as he lifted the lid of the chest to reveal a cloth sack trimmed with gold thread, in which the bones were now contained. Schwartz paused for a moment, before asking his next question. Was there, he said, anything special or remarkable about the bones? Not really, replied the monk. Except, he added, that some of them appeared to have been stained an unusual shade of red in colour. This episode was written by Diane Hope. All other elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring stories that have never before been featured on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones, among other bookstores. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.